Welcome to another episode of Born to Be Dope. I am your host, Ryan C. Green. We're in the studio today with Dr. Donald E. Grant Jr. We're going to talk about all things race, black, white supremacy. Oh, yeah, this is, hold on, y'all. Buckle in, because this is going to be a good one. Let's do it. This week's episode of Born to Be Dope, coming to you right after this. Had a vision, they made a plan. Put it into practice with the actions of my hands. Put it into practice with my circle and my fam. Had my bad people, I became a businessman. This is the illest rhyme I ever wrote. Said I was born to be dope. This is the illest rhyme I ever wrote. Said I was born to be dope. All right, all right. So welcome to the Born to Be Dope show. This is where we help you master, magnify, monetize your unique dopeness by being unapologetically great at being you. So this uh, week we're talking to Dr. Donald E. Grant Jr. Man, welcome. Thanks for coming into the studio, man. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm excited. You're the first one in our brand new spot, it's man. Beautiful. So glad to have you here. Very man. well appointed. Full disclosure, you know, I'll get that from Ari. No, we got to got to tell everybody business. Hampton University grad. Yes, sir. Frat brothers. Yes, sir. So uh, what else? Uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, <laughs> depending on when the show episodes, we may uh, air, episode airs, we may or may not be friends. Depending on what the bills, depends do. on what happened with the bills, man. You know, uh, well, I need the Ravens to win. We well, we got that, so we can be the top seed tomorrow when we beat the, when we beat the Dolphins. Okay, that has to happen. Cause I don't know if we're gonna win tomorrow, cause you know we playing the Steelers. Yeah, I need to win. All right, we'll see. We good. All right, anyway. That's not what we're here to talk about, y'all. But just in case. All right, so listen, Donald Grant, you might have seen this man on. And you've been all over the place, man. Yeah, um, Access Hollywood, um, you know, extra, all the things related to celebrity mental health and um, diversity and inclusion. Great, great. And that's what we want to talk about today, especially the, uh, well, both pieces, because mental health is one of the things that um, people talk about, they say the word. It's kind of become almost cliche, but people don't necessarily, and I, I me, I'm people who don't necessarily, <laughs> you know, that's not what I study. So yeah. I can't necessarily tell you, I can't, I can't go further than, that boy got problems. <laughs> so we want to, but that's what we hear today. We want to talk about that so we can understand a little yeah. better than especially diversity, equity, and inclusion, because um, we've seen that under attack, and you, you know, a lot lately. So we want to talk about that. But let's jump in first. Tell us who you are how you uh, chose this 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 lane or did this lane choose you? The lane kind of actually chose me and so you know I um, went to Hampton and my bachelor's degree is in biology. I decided not to go to medical school after I had an internship at a hospital in Buffalo where I grew up and I became a Baltimore City school teacher. Uh, while I was there I realized that the kids needed way more than I was able to provide which led me to psychology. Um, while I was practicing psychology I was overseeing a small portion of foster care systems for LA County Department of Mental Health. And I realized that my work with individuals was not the most valuable space I could be in because I learned that even though individuals injured each other, systems injured people right, more than individuals. Right, right. And so I started my business, Mindful Training Solutions, in 2013 um, in order to work with systems. And so my first work in that space was helping people understand how black and brown boys were aging out of the foster care system. Mm -hmm. um, all the other children would find their forever homes. Black and brown boys would turn 21 and never have a home, mm -hmm. never be adopted. And so I wanted to know why. And I, um, you know, helped the county figure out and learn about why these black boys were doing this. And so that for me, um, back in 
2009, 2010 was when I first became aware of this construct of diversity and inclusion. Before it was an acronym of note, um, I had been doing the work because I saw the inequities, I saw the disparities, and it just didn't make sense, and nobody was asking the question. And so as I began to dig in further into academia um, and different research, I found these disparities all over the place. And so I've been an um, equity and inclusion practitioner for decades right. before it was even a thing. So let's talk about the systems piece because I think that um, in business, I always talk about systems. You got to have things in place yeah. um, to, to run your business. And I'm a systems guy. Like I see how things connect uh, together. So let's talk about the systems. Because I think when you're talking about um, white supremacy and then you talk about racism, mm -hmm. and I think sometimes they get uh, thrown in a bag together. Uh, but I want to focus. I think I think most people have a good handle on what racism. Is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think so. But, I hope but, so. Right. But let's talk about the, the white supremacy because when you say that part, that's what gets a lot of people like, well, what what do you mean? Or yeah. you know, from all sides. Yeah. But yeah. I think that the white supremacy part is the systemic part. So tell me some of the things that you found. You know, um, you, you know, let's pick one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that you found where that you kind of can show people like this is the systemic issue and how, uh, you know, it, it's there to, to elevate one race and, and push down others. A thousand percent. So when you think about white supremacy, I always, because it's triggering, like you said, it, it kind of creates anxiety for anybody when they hear it. Black, white, no matter what your race, you hear white supremacy and you're like, whoa, who said that? Right, Why right. did they say that, right? And right. so um, I oftentimes start off with this construct uh, that I describe as white superiority ideology. Okay. Um, and so when we think about race, we all know that race is a construct that's not real, but it has really real consequences. Explain that. Because yeah. people hear that, mm -hmm. and I just recently learned that maybe 10, 15, 12 years ago. Yeah, so yeah, most people that, have. That race is a construct. Let's start there and then we keep going. Sounds good. And so when we think about um, race based on skin color, um, we understand that culture and ethnicity is a thing. Like if you're German, if you're Sudanese, all those things are a thing, but when we talk about race, it's about skin color. Um, what we know is that the origins of all people come from the continent of Africa. Um, and when we look at the kind of ultraviolet rays that go across the globe, when individuals, we have two out of African movements, when the anatomically modern humans kind of moved across the globe. Right, right. Um, and we understand that due to sunlight, melanin produces vitamin D. And if in fact you're in a region where the ultraviolet rays are different than those near the equator, you need less melanin, and as a result, skin color changes. Wow. And so when we look at individuals with different skin color, it's literally a manifestation of geography, period. Mm -hmm. um, which makes it a false, content, false construct. Um, now when we talk about race, particularly in America, really, really across the globe, um, it's important to understand that people who identify as white were not always white throughout the his, throughout history. So when we think about Irish immigrants, Polish immigrants, right. when they arrived on this land, they weren't white people. In fact, the descendants of the colonists actually rejected them. Um, and they told the Irish immigrants, the German immigrants, to go and be with the recently um, freed enslaved people or with the Native Americans or the indigenous people. Um, and then, the descendants of the colonists saw those groups building alignments, um, you know, creating unions together. And they said, whoa, 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 we can't do that. Right. Uh, and so when we talk about race, 
whiteness has been malleable for centuries, meaning that they've absorbed different groups um, in order to maintain a population size. Um, when we talk about race, we understand that for the very first time in American history, the 2020 census demonstrated that the white race for the first time declined. And that's what threw white people into a that's frenzy. That's made them mad. That's made them mad. Literally. And so you have this concept that they refer to as the replacement theory. Um, and that's stating that individuals who practice, if you will, white superiority ideology um, are fearful about immigration, about mixing races, because the fear is that the white race is going to be eliminated as a result of immigration and mixed marriages. That's why in America it was illegal for anybody to marry white people except white people right. um, for the sole purpose of maintaining um, that. So when we talk about race, that's why it's not real, although it has very real consequences. Um, when we talk about white superiority ideology, it's that concept that grew out of the malleability of race, meaning that, you know, we got to keep our numbers up. And as of this moment, the white race, if you will, has no more ethnicities to absorb. I think one of the last ones that we looked at was how Persian Americans sometimes identify as white. Um, not all, um, you know, many of them identify as Iranian, which is kind of their cultural background, but they have the ability to pass as white right, if they right, so choose. Right. There are no other cultural ethnicities due to phenotype, due to melanin content, that whiteness can absorb, which is also creating a new lane of white supremacy because there's this fear that there are no other groups for us to say so all we got is what's here. All we have is what's here, and we have to protect that. And so, you know, I understand as a psychologist why that feels dangerous, why that feels scary, right? A lot of people fail to kind of like interpret what things mean. And if somebody is afraid of losing their identity, that's a real threat. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. I'm not justifying the behaviors of individuals who operationalize their white supremacy, but I'm saying I get it. One of my first internships, for instance, um, in graduate school was working at a clinic for male sex offenders. Um, and these men, I, I took that internship because I said, if I could build empathy with a man who rapes children, I could build empathy with anybody and I'll right. be able to have this career for the rest of my life. What I learned is that, and a lot of people say this, but I learned it very clearly, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'd sit with these men and, you know, I'd already, I would have already read their docket because they're all on probation or parole, so their crimes were very clearly stated. Right. Right. But they would tell me that, you know, one guy told me, he said, oh, when I was a kid on a soccer team, my mom was a single mom and she loved to coach. And I would go, he would go on trips, not on the bus, but in the coach's car. And he said the coach would rape him mm. every trip. Wow. And he, wow. as a result, became a sex offender. Right, right. And wow. so understanding his history didn't justify his behavior. It didn't give him a pass. But understanding it helped me understand him. And my work was to reduce recidivism and providing services to these men reduce the chances of them perpetrating again. Right, right, right. And when I think about white supremacy, for me, my last book was about understanding it and unpacking the psychology of it. So for instance, if you look at any lynching scene, if you take a photo of a lynching scene, what you see there are children um, in those lynching scenes. That 10-year-old girl, she wasn't just walking her dog and just happened up on a lynch mob. Her dad 
came home and said, hey, grab your sweater. We're gonna go chase a black man, hang him from a tree and set him on fire. And this is a lesson that you're gonna learn and know for the rest of your life. White people literally traumatize their families in order to maintain this system of white superiority ideology. Now, that little girl in that lynching scene, she's not 300 years old. She's like an 85-year-old grandma of a college student right now. all the time, man. Like, those pictures. First of all, just the first five minutes, he didn't already drop the bomb. We can end the show right here, okay? Just that first five minutes, I wasn't even, I wasn't even ready, okay? But I say that all the time how there's families right now who know their grandparents, their aunts, uncles Absolutely. are in those pictures. Like, Absolutely. Like we saw uh, Jerry Jones was exposed being in yes. the picture once. Like yeah. there were other people in those pictures too. Yeah. And, and just because it's black and white doesn't mean it was from you know, 1800s. Like yep. those yep. people are still here, They're still, still alive. Here. Those still family right members now. still know and, and they just go like nothing ever happened. Well, doctor, if we think about Dr. King, for instance, um, we'd be, if he was still alive right now, we'd be celebrating his 95th birthday. Mm-hmm. He was murdered when he was 39. 39. 39 years old. I look at 39 year olds and I'm like, these are kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I think about this, and that's why it always bothers me that all of the photos of the civil rights movement are in black and white. Um, the colorized photos for people are like shocking. They're yeah, like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not ancient history. Right. Like Martin Luther King was born the same year as Barry Gordy, mm. Roxy Roker. Like, it's not ancient was, history. Uh, Lenny Kravitz is mom. Yes, uh, um, uh, from, um, from Jefferson. Jefferson. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, it's a great show. It's yeah. a great show, and it was a, 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 a impactful show when you think about. Um, absolutely. When you think <laughs> about what Norman Lear did. So here's here's how the Jeffersons came about. I don't okay. know if you know the story. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. Norman Lear had already had good times and Sanford and Son. Mm-hmm. The Black Panther Party came to Norman Lear, and they said, "Hey." It's great that you're telling black stories, but why is it that every black story you're telling just focuses on poverty? We had good times, all those things. And so Norman Lear said, oh, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Okay, I got, now there's currently things going on about how Norman Lear may have stole some of the ideas. That's a different story. We can unpack that later. (laughs) But what we know that Norman did was he said, oh, I didn't realize that all the stories I was telling about black people were promoting stereotypes about poverty, blah, blah, blah. Even though James Evans and the Evans family on Good Times, they were a great family, but James had to work 25 jobs, all the things, right? And so when the Black Panther Party came to him, he said, oh, okay. And so George was a a character on All in the Family who worked at a dry cleaner's. And so Norman said, oh, I'll take this dude, and instead of making him work at a dry cleaners, I'll allow him to own a franchise of dry cleaners. And as a result, he and his family moved to a deluxe apartment in the sky. We know. And um, that's how how it happened. And so, um, you know, when you think about white supremacy, you think about people who have power and access, um, the ability to utilize that power and access to create change, that's what he did. Now, again, all of the things that he may have stolen. Like, I don't know if those to be true, but I don't doubt it. Right. Um, But that's an example. And so when we talk about white supremacy, one of the major examples that I give that creates a a, a great dialogue across time is the current um, maternal mortality rates for black women. Mm -hmm. So right now we know that black women die on the birthing tables at three to four times the rate of white women across the country. Um, What we also know is that the father of modern gynecology, a man named Dr. Marion Sims, used to rent enslaved women in order to practice gynecological procedures on them without anesthesia. 
and to to make to master his skills for his white patients. Wow. And so when you look at the current statistics on black maternal mortality and black infant mortality, which is also black babies die at 2.4 times the rate of white babies up to one before their first birthdays. Wow. And research shows us that black babies are more likely to live if they're cared for by black doctors. That to me is the piece that demonstrates that this is all about systemic right, racism. Get back to the system, right, come back right to the system. Literally right back to the right. systems part. And so when you talk mm -hmm. about white superiority ide ideology, white supremacy, right now one of the biggest pieces of evidence is in fact the black, mat black maternal mortality rate because the history of gynecology is grounded in strong, heavy racism. And as a result, when black women are on the birthing tables and they're explaining their pain, it's not that the doctors are saying, no, I'm not listening to you. They're literally subconsciously thinking that this woman has the capacity to bear more than others. Currently, medical students endorse on surveys. They still believe right now that our skin is literally thicker than other skin. So what that means is that when wow. they're trying to find my vein to do an IV, they're poking harder because they literally endorse on surveys that they believe these things to be true. A great book for people to check out is Medical Apartheid. Um, it's a wonderful book and it tells all these stories about systemic racism and how we see it operationalized today. I mean, that's, that's, that's wild. I've, I've heard and, and know, familiar with the fact that they think that we can bear more pain. Yeah. But when you show how it, it trickles down to just the simplest, and think about how many people, black people we know are afraid of needles. Literally. Maybe it's because they were poked too hard by someone who sub subconsciously or consciously thought this is a black person. So, man, it's, that's just how, it's just all, okay. Uh, <laughs> let me, I want to go to the, um, let's talk about the, the mental health within the black community. Yeah. Um, the cause and effect of it, I want to kind of frame it that way, cause and effect of um, either, the word I have is ignoring, but Sometimes it's, we just don't know. So maybe the ignorance to yeah. um, mental health. What do you think? How how has that impacted us by not paying attention? Paying attention to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 multi-layered as you already know. And so you know, black people have been injured by medicine across time. And you think about the Tuskegee, all the things. Right, and right, so, right. excuse me. As a result black families have not felt welcome in some of those spaces. And so we have, you know, this industry. And I, I remember I was um, working in Eastern Europe and I had a weekend off and I went to Vienna. Um, and that's where Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, did all of his work. And I had the chance to like walk through the, the house where he worked and wow. see all the, the remnants. And I don't think everybody, whatever discipline you're in, I don't know if everybody gets the opportunity to like walk through the origins of your discipline. Right, right. And so for me, walking through um, Vienna, Austria, in that house, even though there's a lot of concerns with the f work that Freud did, there was grounded in racism, a lot of sexism, right. all the things, um, it still felt interesting to be able to walk through that space. What we know to be true about the world of psychology is that black people have been pathologized inappropriately for decades, I mean for centuries, excuse me. And as a result, we've resisted entrance into this space. I remember growing up, and I didn't grow up with any sort of major trauma besides poverty. Right. Um, I could still remember my mom saying things like, 
what happens in our house stays in our house, right? And I feel like a lot of black people can kind of reflect on that type of sentiment existing. And as a result, you don't talk to a therapist. Right, you right, don't right. You don't go do this. And so in my, I say mid 40s, but I guess I'm kind of late 40s now. <laughs> in my late 40s, you know, all these different family secrets start coming out. You have aunts and uncles who are now like, oh, you grown now, so I'm gonna tell you about this. And I'm like, what? Right. And then you learn about, you know, great grandma or your aunt and, you know, the terms that we used back then was, oh, she had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. She actually has schizophrenia. Man, you know what? I put my, my, <laughs> aunt, my aunt, my mother's sister. Yeah. Like that was always a thing like, growing up. That's all was well. We were always told she had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, she probably had bipolar disorder yeah, or schizophrenia yeah. or whatever it was. But we don't have that language. And so for me, um, I just finished a major project at a contract with Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, where I was tasked to learn about what Black men in the county needed for mental health purposes. So we did 260 surveys, a bunch of focus groups. I had um, some young graduate students running programs all out there. What we learned was that 90, one of the questions on the survey asked black men to identify the areas and spaces where they experienced racism throughout their lives as a kid and an adult. Right. 93% of the respondents on that survey saw racism in six or four in four or more spaces as children and adults. So I, I, I identified workplace, shopping, banking, all, right. all those spaces. And what people minimize is that everybody has a mental health concern, but when you juxtapose that to our experience with racism, yeah, yeah. racism is a psychological burden that a lot of people don't pay attention to, yeah. and it impacts us. Yeah. Like, so for instance, everybody gets nervous when the police officer is behind them. Right, right. Everybody does. White, white, white everybody. Yeah, right. But everybody doesn't get nervous to the point where they feel like they could die. This could be their last day. This could be their last yep, moment yep, in yep. time. That is a burden that we experience, a burden when I have to go and buy a new shirt at Nordstrom and I'm just leaving the gym. I'm like, oh, I need to go home yeah. and put on something that comes from Nordstrom for me to go into <laughs> Nordstrom. Wow. Like yeah. that's a psychological mm -hmm. burden yeah. that we've absorbed over time. And we, it's just standard fare, but it's still hitting us and hurting us. And so, you know, mental health in the black community has to be amplified. We have to honor the fact that we live in a world that's riddled with injuries. Mm -hmm. And if we're not honest with our kids and honest with ourselves, we spiral out of control. Yeah. And so it's critical. And I see how, especially with social media, we can see we're so connected now. Yeah, yeah. We can see how, I don't know if it's a, a coping mechanism, but the black community, a lot of our humor, a lot of our shared experience that we find that we can make jokes of really come from trauma. Like oh. it's really from a traumatic place that now we've experienced it, we all live it, and it's like, okay, we make something funny out of it, but you really go to the root of it, it's like, now that we should, that it's ain't trauma. right. I, I, should, I think about all the time, I call, it, I call it the black man out humble, right? So uh -huh. you, you run into a brother and you're like, oh, Oh. That's a nice suit. Like, oh no, look at your shoes. Uh -huh. Oh no, you doing good. No, you doing I'm better. I'm trying to be like I'm you. I'm just trying to be like you. <laughs> right, right, I'm right. just trying to make it. Wow. That literally is a remnant mm. of white supremacy where black men weren't allowed Gee, me to honor <laughs> their greatness. Right. And right, as right. a result, we are compelled, even when engaging with one another, we're compelled to down ourselves. We feel like we just, yeah, man. I'm thinking. 
And we probably processed that thinking that we're just trying to give our, our brother some props too. But it's like, nah. And both things are existing at the same yeah, time. I yeah, am in yeah. fact trying to give you props, but here's the problem. Mm. I'm unable to consciously accept you giving me props. Right, right, right. Because the world has told me historically that I gotta keep my head down. I can't be too, too, too big. I have to, you know, make myself right, small. Right, right. And as a result, even when engaging with other black men, we subconsciously put ourselves down. That's why I love sometimes when we go out, when I go out with some of my buddies um, in LA who I've known for years, whether it's Hampton Bros or people from Buffalo there, sometimes we go out and we're like, we're not talking about like trauma and race. Mm -hmm. What we're gonna talk about is our businesses, our kids, our money and our cars. Right. And sometimes we just sit and do that because we don't ever consciously take time to celebrate our greatness. Because we've told we've been told we can't. And that's what Born to Be Dope was really born out of. Well, I mean, I wasn't on that deep of a level as you, but it was it was the fact that my my background is is from church, mm -hmm. and where I feel like we're always told be humble, you can't. Um, you know, speak out about yourself, be meek. I'm like, no, yo, we were born to be dope. And it's got, we've got, we, we, you know, it's all about, like I said, yeah. a celebration of unapologetically great at you. And it came from me, my personal experience, because as an author, and I tell this story often, first book came out in 2005, and my biggest challenge I had when I published my book, and you understand this as an author too, was do I put my black face on the cover of my book? That part. That was the biggest, that was the biggest challenge. Yeah. You know, how many white authors have to think about that when they write None. a book? They don't. None. But as a black author, I'm like, okay, do I want to put my black face on this book? Um, and I already know that when I do that, it's going to limit, you know, X amount of sales. Right. Yep. So, um, living that experience and finally getting What did you decide to do? I didn't put it on there at yeah. first. And then eventually I put it, that first book has been through like several covers. So first, first I didn't put it on there. I didn't like the cover anyway. So when I republished it, I put myself on there. Yeah. All right. And then, um, now I don't have it on there, but. Now my, my most recent books, <clears throat> well, uh, the last book I did, Make It Matter, that has me on there, has yeah. all of us on there, but I'm doing a Born To Be Dope book next and that will definitely have my cover on of course, it. Because it's like, I made a decision, like, look, I am who I am and I'm, I'm great at being me. So yeah. whoever I, whoever can uh, is attracted by me, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm here for. Yeah. I can't worry about trying to appeal to other people who aren't even checking for me anyway. So yeah, that was that was that my part. first journey, right? So <laughs> right. I think someone we get caught up thinking that oh well, you know we got to do this for certain people, but those certain people aren't looking for us anyway. They aren't our our client. They weren't um, target. We're not in there. Yeah, yeah, we weren't here to serve them anyway. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so definitely, man. So I want to uh, talk about uh, some more black. The mental health is released to, to to the black community. I want to kind of talk about politics now. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure when this show is going to air, but I know it is. Today is the sixth, right? Or uh, yesterday I think it's, it's the, the seventh. I don't even know what. What tomorrow, day? I think tomorrow is the 6th. Oh, what day it is, man. Good <laughs> Lord. Well, we're coming up, whatever day this is, we know this is January 6th weekend. It is. All right, and we're here in um, Maryland, right outside of D.C. Yeah. So, uh, three years ago, we saw... Is it three years ago already? Three years ago? The January yeah. 6th riot, right? Yeah. We saw um, that happen. Uh, but I, want to, I want to talk about this from a black perspective. Um, I want to start with the January 6th riot, but more specifically, um, Trump. Yeah. And black, not all, obviously, but certain black people's relationships with Trump, because um, what I'm starting to hear more often now is uh, from people with, with platforms 
Trump gave me the PPP loan and it was Biden done for. (laughs) I never knew who um, (laughs) Sexy Red, I think that's her name. She's a rapper. I never had never heard of her. Uh Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Congratulations. No shade, no shade, Sexy Red. I don't even know if I'm saying your name right. But I remember like seeing something and after after I saw it, I realized I'd heard her song before, but I didn't know who she was. And I, you know, asked my son, my 14 year old son, I was like, do you know who this woman is? He was like, yeah, she's a, and I said, well, she's saying how she loves Trump because you know, the PPP loans and all the things. And for me, I look at that. And again, you can have any political framework you yeah, want. It is not, that, um, right. it's not about, and this is not about politics. Right, it's right. not about, it's not about that because um, I mean, in, in some spaces, some of my practices and my ideologies are not all democratic, right? right? I'm registered usually as an independent, right. um, but because it limits my ability to vote in, um, Primary. in the primaries, exactly. I do sometimes have to pick a side. Uh, but there's some practices and policies that I'm not so democratic about. I'm like, I want to keep more of my money. Right. Um, and so when I think about politics, this standpoint is not about politics. Um, you know, this standpoint is about people being blinded by white supremacy and white superiority ideology. When you think about what happened at our U.S. Capitol on January 6th, it was all about the earlier piece that we were talking about, about the fear of being eliminated and the fear of being replaced. Um, I was listening to the radio here in D.C. the other day, and for some reason, I guess maybe it was who rented the car before I had it. All the stations were <laughs> were all this really like gnarly Republican stuff, and um, I heard this commercial for Patriot Phones. I never heard this commercial before, but it's a phone company that funnels dollars to <laughs> to all these all this stuff. And so, when you think about and I'm not even gonna say black Republicans. When you think about black people who support Trump, um, which is different than a black Republican. Um, right, I right, know some black right. Republicans who are amazing people who share a lot of the common ideologies yeah. that I do. So specifically about Trump and, and who he, and what, who he, he, what he represents. And what he represents, right. That's, right. That's what, right exactly. And so, so when you think about January 6th, this man has curated a following that is steeped in fear related to their identity. And that literally is the bottom line. Those men and women who marched into that Capitol and rioted and hurt people and all the destruction and harm that they caused, they were raising their flag to say, we are here, we are white, and we will not be replaced. Mm -hmm. And the major problem with it was, when we talk about systems, And it feels weird to say, because it's like, it's common knowledge. Everybody knows that if those were all black people there, it would have been the largest mass It would have been the largest annihilation in modern US history. And my problem is, is that when you say that, there are people who are like, well, I don't think that's true. (laughs) And it's very, the evidence is very clear that if in fact, those had been thousands of black, first of all, it wouldn't have been able to gather that many black people because it would have been stopped way before they got there. The reason I bring that up is because the system of America has granted white people the road, the opportunity to kind of show out like this. Um, You know, we have to understand that whiteness, like we said earlier, is this false construct, but even bigger than that, 
white people historically have had to throw away their identity to become white. And so when we talk about Irish immigrants and um, you know Russian immigrants and Polish immigrants, they got here, the descendants of the colonists were like, yo, if you stop cooking all that garlicky food, Mr. Italian man, I'll let you buy a house on my street. Mr. Polish immigrant, if you shave that SKI off the back of your last name, I'll let you apply for a job at my workplace. Now, I can't say as a black man that I would not have done the same thing to get my kid in the best school, to buy a house in the best neighborhood. I can't say that I would not have done the same thing. So I'm not saying this as a judgment. I am, however, saying that many white Americans had to throw away their cultural identity to become white. Right now, for the first time in history over the last 15 years, we've seen the retraction of that where white people are like, oh, I'm gonna do my DNA. Now I know that I'm from Germany or I'm from Poland or I'm from wherever it is. Uh, But 30 years ago, there was no talk about that. We don't know where our ancestors came from. We don't pay attention to that because why? We're white. white. And my great grandpa had to throw away his ethnic identity, cultural identity, to become white. We're gonna take a break, y'all. <laughs> We're gonna come at that, just marinate for a second. We'll come right back after this more born to be dope. With Donald E. Grant. Let's do it. Tell me this sounds familiar if you're an author. You've published your book, you sold a few hundred copies, and now you're like, well, what to do next? Before you go out trying to write another book, uh, I wanna to talk to you about Author Media Camp. Now, Media Camp is, is a six-week program where we're gonna show you how to take your $20 book and build a thriving media platform off of it, how to take your book and turn it into a film, take it, turn it into a TV show, turn it into your online course, how to build visual media from your course, or from your book, so that you now position yourself as the celebrity authority. I'm going to show you how to 10x your impact, influence, and income from the content you already have uh, by building a, a visual media platform. And you can go out and buy all the equipment. You can go out and, and do all the studying and, and film all the stuff yourself, or you can get with a group that's already doing it. They can show you in six weeks how to build those things out and then bring you into our studios to film it for you. So we're gonna actually help you not just build it, but then film it so that you have quality, professional level, premium looking uh, video content to go with your brand. So if that sounds like you, I wanna invite you to visit btbmediacamp.com, btbmediacamp.com. Get all the information on Media Camp and schedule a call so we can discuss your project, discuss more in depth about the program and see if it's a fit for you. And it's not just for offers. If you're a speaker, if you're a coach, if you're an entrepreneur and an expert, you know you're trying to develop something bigger than what you already have, then go to BTB Media Camp. Let's schedule a call. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Ryan C. Green, executive producer of Born To Be Dope. And if you know, you know that Born To Be Dope is more than just a TV show, or more than just a podcast. We're a movement all about celebrating, being unapologetically great at being you. And right now, I'm excited to announce we are casting for our next Born To Be Dope visual mixtape and live summit. So if you're a speaker, author, coach, expert, just somebody with a cool story, and you know that you have something that can help people master, magnify, or monetize their unique dopeness so they can be successful in 10x their impact, influence, and income, and business in life, then we want to talk to you. We want to feature you in our next visual mixtape. So we're casting now. You can go to borntobedope.com, get all the information on what visual mixtape is, what we're looking for, how you can be on, uh, be in our film, how you can speak on our stage, and how you can share your story and grow your business uh, by, sh- by helping other people. So we're excited about it. We want to help you uh, grow your business. We want to share your story with the world. So go to borntobedope.com. Let's talk. Let's schedule a call so we can discuss the options with you. I can't wait to talk to you. Be dope.
Hey, whenever I'm wearing my Born to Be Dope apparel, people ask me, where can I get one of those? And the answer is WearDopeTees.com. That's T-E-E-S. Go to WearDopeTees.com. You can go and see the full Born to Be Dope apparel line. Get your favorite shirts. Get your favorite hoodie. Buy one for you. Buy one for a friend. Rep the brand that reps you. Go to WearDopeTees.com. Get your shirts today. Hey, if you're enjoying this show and you're born to be dope, then we need your help. Make sure you go ahead and like this show, whether you're on YouTube, whether you're listening to it on your podcast streamer, like the show, but also subscribe. Subscribe to the show, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and then share it out. Tell someone else about it. We only can grow this show as fast as you help us grow. So go ahead and make sure you do that. Like the show, uh, subscribe, and share it. Then also make sure you join the conversation at the Born to Be Dope Cipher. You can go to borntobedopecipher.com and join our private group. We're having all the inside combo, all the behind the scenes stuff, all the dope uh, uh, conversation starters are going on in the Born to Be Dope Cipher. So make sure you go to borntobedopecipher.com and join the Facebook group now. All right, welcome back. Man, this conversation has been fire. So we are back with uh, Dr. Donald E. Grant Jr. We've been talking about just, you know, how we gonna take over this, no, I'm just joking about that. <laughs> no, we're talking about, uh, you know, mental health, talking about systemic racism. Now we're gonna get into the DEI. Because what I love about <laughs> America <laughs> is that um, they, they seem, how do I put this? America, I describe it like this. It's, it's the person who always says, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, that then goes and does something crazy to prove that they are crazy, even right. though they've been telling you the whole time they weren't crazy. Yeah. America seems that way to tell you, we're not racist, we're not racist, we're not racist, but then everything they do to prove they're not racist shows that they're racist. Absolutely. So let's talk about, the. Uh, we're gonna go a little deeper into the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece about this because um, what we've seen now, like it, they don't want us anywhere. So Harvard, Basically. now we went to, we always called the real HU, yes, Hampton yes, University. Yes, yes. Shout out to Howard University too. We know y'all were in HU first, but yeah. you, you're not, it's excellent to us. But before all of that, there was Harvard University. So fair enough. Just the HU family, okay, HU lineage. So, and however many years they've been around, even though, uh, yes. a long time. Absolutely. This was the first uh, black and female she was the first female. She I was. think she was the first female. Okay, yeah, I yeah, yeah. So first black and female president they have. She lasted six months. Six months. Six months. Now, surely she wasn't elevated to that position because she wasn't qualified. So surely she was qualified. Absolutely. Uh, so in the long storied history of one of the most prestigious. Pre- thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. I love people smarter than me. <laughs> prestigious <laughs> institutions of higher learning. All the years of that, they couldn't handle having a minority president for six months, for longer than six months. And I'm gonna say today, let me let me specify, because clearly it wasn't everyone. It wasn't Absolutely. it wasn't everyone, but the institution itself allowed the few to get rid of her. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. let's talk about, uh, and I was Claudine Gay. Yeah. I want to talk about her name specifically. Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Claudine Gay. Yeah. Um, talk about what happened. Yeah, and and why this should be concerning for those, everybody, for everybody, and, and especially diversity, equity, inclusion as a thing. I think that Harvard itself is a um, microcosm of America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you think about the legacy clauses at, at Harvard, and you talk about diversity and inclusion, um, before we even talk about Dr. Gay, 
you think about the fact that um, I think the admissions rate for the general public for Harvard is below eight to 10%, like of, ev of everybody who wants to go there, it's very low. But for legacy, for people whose children, who people who are children of Harvard graduates, mm -hmm. I think the entry rate is like above 50%. Wow. And so Harvard as an institution in many ways is a microcosm of what America does and how America functions. Um, and so when you think about this first black woman leading this major organization, and we see black people leading major organizations across the country, not in the numbers that we should, but they're there. There had been, before she was even placed in that position, mm -hmm. there was a train that started running to get her out. When you think about how she was treated, how all those presidents were treated at that congressional hearing, um, the danger in it. Now, I will say, I don't think that her board and her leadership prepared her appropriately because when I did watch the hearing, um, I wish I had been able to be her executive coach um, because there was some language that she could have used that would have been a little bit less disarming and not disarming as a black woman, but in this very touchy space of talking about anti-Semitism, which is a dangerous conversation to have in America. We're not talking about that because I like my show. And I so, like my contracts. Right, and I don't, we don't, so we, we don't leave that, we understand that was the topic. We that was the topic. Into that. Right, we're, right, not, right. we're not gonna dig into it. But she walked through some of those minefields mm -hmm. without the preparation I wish she had had. Mm -hmm. And that's not speaking to her intelligence, that's not speaking to her ability to do her job, but she needed a few more tools, oh, everybody did, yeah. to have that conversation. But what we know to be very true, in spite of some of the missteps in that conversation, what was even more true, and what demonstrates the truth behind this, is that after that happened, her academic integrity began to be questioned. Right. They began to look at her research and talk about plagiarism. And she's a Harvard graduate. Right, right, right. She didn't just show up at Harvard to be the right. president. Like, she's an alum. She's one of them. She's one of them. Her kids should have been, you know, had a 50% chance of getting accepted <laughs> right, into the school right. too. She's one of them. And so, right, right. to me, when they began to speak about plagiarism and question her academic integrity, that to me demonstrated that there had been this train running well before she was placed. Right, right. Um, and when I think about the fear that people have, when I go to an organization, I'm very transparent about who I am as a consultant when I walk in the door. Right. So if people hire me, they already knew what they were getting, right? right. right? <laughs> and so when I work with an organization and we're having these conversations and I've had white, and I'm, I, my, most of my clients are Fortune 100 companies. Like these are major corporations. Right. And so I've had white men ask me, they say, well, Dr. Grant, if you're saying we need to diversify our C-suite, does that mean that there are gonna be fewer seats for white men? And I say, yes, unless you decide that you're gonna expand your C-suite right. by 30% and you know, add a C, whatever that would be. Like if you're not adding more seat to the table, that's literally what that means. Right, right. And they say, well, that's not fair. I have to explain to them across centuries what hasn't been fair is that all these major corporations have been led by white men. Right, right. 
over, many of whom were not qualified to do the job for which they were placed in. Now, that's not being shady to white men, but what we know to be true because the anthropological record demonstrates it is that white men tend to get elevated simply as a result of being white men. And as a result, one of the dangerous pieces of the work that I do in this diversity, equity, and inclusion space is helping people understand that yes, it literally means that there are fewer seats. When I work with private schools and they say, well, does that mean there are gonna be fewer spaces for white children? Yeah, unless the school is gonna say we're gonna increase enrollment. And I'm like, and that, their apprehension to that idea going back to the slash of the car, is proof of why DEI is necessary. Absolutely. Because- Literally. Because the fact that they're okay with all the spaces being filled by whites, they're okay with that. But the idea of having someone else there because it may replace yeah. a white person, like they can't grasp to say, well, that's why this is necessary. Well, one of the major concerns is that they have, they have been unwilling to accept the fact that a lot of the access that they've been granted has not been authentically related to their skill or ability. I think that's the biggest, I think that's the That's the, the right biggest there. challenge. That's literally the biggest challenge. You have yeah, to acknowledge, yeah, yeah. in the same way that when we talk about male privilege, yeah. men, black men, white men, yeah. Asian men, Latinx men, we walk through a world that is aimed at us. Think about, we're right here next to DC. Mm -hmm. Every, every monument built across the world is a big white phallus. Yeah, 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 and we yeah. walk around worshiping yeah. penises yeah. across the world yeah. because of male privilege. Yeah. And men are just now, like when, when we were talking about when the Me Too movement began, um, you know, you hear a man say, oh, I'd love to give Sally a compliment on her dress, but I can't because that's sexual harassment. It's like, no, that's not sexual harassment. You've just been allowed to speak to women any way you mm -hmm. wanted right, to historically. Right. And now you're being told it's not okay for you to walk around this meeting table and put your hand on her shoulder. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. Right, right. But it's been okay before. It wasn't okay yeah, then. It wasn't, it wasn't okay then. <laughs> it's it just, never been okay. Right, we never address it. It just yeah. it, we've just lived in an ecology that has allowed those things to happen. Um, sociologists did a study did studies a few uh, decades ago where they transcribed hundreds of hours of corporate meetings and they listened to them and they counted the number of times that men interrupt women in meetings. That, and it's not like, oh, shut up, lady. Your thought is not important. It's more like, oh, okay, thank you, Joan. We'll get back to that. Mm -hmm. And it's really not a conscious thing. It's a manifestation of male privilege that we now have to be aware of. And it's not saying, you're a man, you're bad. It's saying, you're a man who's been told that you're more important than yeah. women, yeah. and you got to check that. that. That example you specifically is one that when things started coming up and we started educating ourselves about it, even before then, I was always conscious to it about how often men do interrupt yeah. women. And on the flip side, how often the women would just fall back. Fall back. Because that's right. what they've been doing. And then when the black women don't fall back, how that, they get labeled as like, no, well, you, you know, it's, yeah, so that right there, even as a, being, you know, transparent as a host of a show. Yeah. Like, I deal with, and we just saw, <laughs> we just saw Club Shay Shay, what happened when, oh. the host, when the host just sit back and let the, the, <laughs> let the guests talk. Let it ride. Right, so it's like, two hours always like, when, when, do you, right, when do you jump in? When do you let them talk? So that's always been a thing I've struggled with. 
uh, or, or dealt with, but definitely when it comes to male female yeah. relations, understanding that is so important, man. Yeah. So, and it's just little things, little things that Literally. you know, it doesn't make. I would say, being ignorant to something doesn't make you a bad person. Once you know the truth or know the facts about something, and then you continue to do those things because this is what you want to do. That's when you got to question your character and who you are. That's the so, problem. Yeah. I had a conversation once. Somebody, <laughs> it was great. Somebody did an analogy of racism to illiteracy. And I was like, that's a genius. Wow. They said, if you call somebody illiterate, it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't feel good. But right. they're, if they're illiterate, it's literally they don't know how to read. Mm -hmm. But when you learn to read, you're no longer illiterate. Right. Racism is like that. It doesn't feel good to be called racist, but when you're doing racist things, that's what you are. Yeah. When you learn not to do those things, suddenly you're anti-racist. Right. And that's okay right. to grow in that direction. And so for me, it's kind of like, yeah, I'll, I would never want to be called illiterate, but if I can't read, yeah. I'm illiterate. Yeah. But guess what? I can fix that. There's a way to fix it. There's a way to fix it. There's yeah. A way to fix yeah. it. So, yeah, I love that. That's about that anti I'm just Because the opposite of racist is not not racist it's anti-racist that's the thing and that's the thing i think a lot of people um think well i'm not out because you're not out there calling a black person the n-word you're not a racist now if you're not fighting against racism that's exactly right then you, you know you're participating in it let's go to executive coaching yeah <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do by the way because you and i love how you're going to use uh dr gay you talking about how you would have coached her so we're not use her specifically yeah but let's talk about executive coaching what that is, why, what specifically you do in that space, yeah. and why as an executive, they should be open to coaching. Because I think that, you know, if you reach a point of ex an executive level, sometimes you'll have a, a idea that no one can teach you anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about that in the time we have left and, uh, you know, why that's important, what you do in that space. And yeah, how, yeah. Know. One of the things that I found in my work, and I've kind of worked across a variety of different spaces from academia to nonprofit to the private sector, and what I find is that leaders, when you reach a certain level, there's oftentimes no more professional development. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you don't need professional right. development, but you're the head. And so I sit on a few boards and, you know, board leadership is something that I love too. On these boards for a nonprofit or for profit, the only boss that the CEO has is the board. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as a result of my board membership, I began to see the kind of gaps that leaders had in their spaces. And I began saying, I can help you with that. Or, you know, like some of the notes that I've seen executives send out, particularly related um, to current events, it's kind of like, mm, you needed some help with that. Even when they send it to their comms people, it still comes out like, mm, you could have did better. Um, and so for me, executives right now are living in a space that's very different from what it was when they were in their junior spaces of their careers but many of them are still operating as though the zeitgeist and the ecology is the same as it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when they were just uh, you know, a VP and now they're a CEO. And so for me, executive coaching is the space where I get to hold a mirror up to these executives to help them see if the environment that they're creating is in fact aimed at the highest productivity for their teams. Um, so when people say that I'm a you know, diversity inclusion practitioner, that is true. However, 
I'm a wellness practitioner who happens to be a psychologist. I go into organizations and I help leaders understand how to curate an environment that maximizes productivity, that maximizes creativity, and that increases their bottom line. Gotcha. Um, in order for me to run a business, I just can't be like, oh, let's talk about all the nice and touchy-feely right, stuff. Right. And so executive coaching, what I learned from, what I learned from the work that I did on why it was so important is because I can go into an organization and give them all the tools that they need. But if the leader doesn't understand how to maintain and sustain those changes, everything falls apart and their investment has been wasted. Um, and so the people I have right now, I have five executive um, executives who I coach, um, all different races, all different ages. One is a 34-year-old um, CEO of a marketing company. Another is a 73-year-old um, CEO of a major sports team. And you know, helping them see these things for me has been one of the most rewarding parts of the work that I do because you know I'm, I don't do therapy anymore. I realized that you know the one-on-one -on -one wasn't for me. It was right. it was cool. I was good at it, but it wasn't where I found my joy. Um, but this type of one-on-one, -on -one, where it's not just about oh how do you feel? Tell me more about this. It's literally about strategy numbers, dollars, and people. And to be able to help a leader understand how they block mm -hmm. the environment from being its best and watch them actually make changes to implement some of those strategies to make their teams and their team's teams feel good about being in that space. I love it. Awesome, man, awesome. Listen, we gotta take one more break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about some hip hop because that's what this show is about. Did I say at the beginning? We mix hip hop and personal development. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about some hip hop coming right back after this next break. All right. Tell me this sounds familiar if you're an author. You've published your book, you've sold a few hundred copies, and now you're like, well, what to do next? Before you go out trying to write another book, uh, I wanna to talk to you about Author Media Camp. Now, Media Camp is, is a six-week program where we're gonna show you how to take your $20 book and build a thriving media platform off of it, how to take your book and turn it into a film, take it, turn it into a TV show, turn it into your online course, how to build visual media from your course, uh, from your book, so that you now position yourself as the celebrity authority. I'm gonna show you how to 10X your impact, influence, and income from the content you already have uh, by building a, a visual media platform. And you can go out and buy all the equipment, you can go out and, and do all the studying and, and, and film all the stuff yourself, or you can get with a group that's already doing it. They can show you in six weeks how to build those things out and then bring you into our studios to film it for you. So we're gonna actually help you not just build it, but then film it so that you have quality, professional level, premium looking uh, video content to go with your brand. So if that sounds like you, I wanna invite you to visit btbmediacamp.com, btbmediacamp.com. Get all the information on the media camp and schedule a call so we can discuss your project, discuss more in depth about the program and see if it's a fit for you. And it's not just for authors, if you're a speaker, if you're a coach, if you're an entrepreneur and an expert, and you know you're trying to develop something bigger than what you already have, then go to BTB Media Camp. Let's schedule a call. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Ryan C. Green, executive producer of Born To Be Dope. And if you know, you know that Born To Be Dope is more than just a TV show, or more than just a podcast. We're a movement all about celebrating, being unapologetically great at being you. And right now, I'm excited to announce we're casting for our next Born To Be Dope visual mixtape and live summit. So if you're a speaker, author, coach, expert, just somebody with a cool story, and you know that you have something that can help people master, magnify, or monetize their unique dopeness so they can be successful and 10X their impact, influence, and income, and business in life, then we want to talk to you. We want to feature you in our next visual mixtape. So 
quit casting now. You can go to borntobedope.com, get all the information on what visual mixtape is, what we're looking for, how you can be on, uh, be in our film, how you can speak on our stage, and how you can share your story and grow your business uh, by, by helping other people. So we're excited about it. We want to help you uh, grow your business. We want to share your story with the world. So go to borntobedope.com. Let's talk. Let's schedule a call so we can discuss the options with you. I can't wait to talk to you. Be dope. Hey, whenever I'm wearing my Born to Be Dope apparel, people ask me, where can I get one of those? And the answer is wheredopetees.com. That's T-E-E-S. Go to wheredopetees.com. You can go and see the full Born to Be Dope apparel line. Get your favorite shirts. Get your favorite hoodie. Buy one for you. Buy one for a friend. Rep the brand that reps you. Go to wheredopetees.com. Get your shirts today. Hey, if you're enjoying this show and you're born to be dope, then we need your help. Make sure you go ahead and like this show, whether you're on YouTube, whether you're listening to it on your podcast streamer, like the show, but also subscribe. Subscribe to the show, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and then share it out. Tell someone else about it. We only can grow this show as fast as you help us grow. So go ahead and make sure you do that. Like the show, uh, subscribe, and share it. Then also make sure you join the conversation at the Born to Be Dope Cipher. You can go to borntobedopecipher.com and join our private group. We're having all the inside combo, all the behind the scenes stuff, all the dope uh, uh, conversation starters are going on in the Born to Be Dope Cipher. So make sure you go to borntobedopecipher.com and join the Facebook group now. All right, welcome back to Born to Be Dope. It's time to talk some hip hop, man. So, and the reason I, I, I add hip hop to it, because I think hip hop is the one culture that uh, one we own. Yeah, I'll say the one. That's one of the we own. Absolutely. But also, it was it was started out of just being unapologetically you. You know, it was people who were like, listen, they want to tell their story, want yeah. to be them, and um, we've seen that now it's become the most powerful culture, powerful force in in, in the world, and the most monetized, and the, and the most monetized. Yeah, and being colonized by the moment. Yes. Anyway, colonized and appropriated. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. But let's talk about hip hop, man. Let's. So first, a couple questions. You know, some rapid fire questions. What was the first hip hop song that you can remember hearing that when you heard it, you was like, oh, this, you knew it wasn't R&B, you knew it wasn't mm -hmm. funk, like this mm -hmm. is, what is this? You know, don't push me, cause I'm close to two. the edge. That was so mine too. Man. I had a little Fisher Price record player. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how old I was, but my uncle, who was also my godfather, my mother's oldest brother, he passed away a few years ago, one of my best friends. Um, he brought me that album when I was a kid, and um, he 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 was one of the coolest dudes I ever met. Um, he played ball internationally in um, Italy for years, and he lived in Chicago. And you know, growing up in Buffalo, you got an uncle who lives in Chicago. Like it's a big deal. So he bought me that album. That's the first um, my first entry into loving hip hop. That was that was the song. Yeah, that was me too, man. I, I think about I didn't know back then, but like. That was the first hip hop song I remember. Like, what is this? Certainly, first album, hip hop album. Yeah, album. man. Yeah. So, um, what's your go-to rap song? My favorite rap song um, is the Respiration Remix by Black Star. Okay. Um, the words, the rhythm. I like the regular one too, but and, and also I think it, it, it was at a time in my life where where that song was out that it meant something to me. When I think about the refrain, the breathe in, breathe out, I hear the bass like it, it, it's just something about it. When it comes on, yeah. it evokes in me, and and those aren't even my. They would be in my top ten, but you know, Dre, Andre 3000 is my favorite rapper. But Respiration Remix, my favorite rap song. Is Dre also your favorite flute player now? Listen, I love it too, but I saw his interview. He was just like, 
you want to rap about colonoscopies? Yeah, I'm like, right. actually, that, that, that might would be, be nice. That would be that nice. That might be nice because some brothers need to go get their colonoscopy. Right, and that's that's a perfect segue. You would think <laughs> I planned this, but I wanted to talk to you about um, mental health and hip hop. So um, we talked about mental health. We talked about the black community. I think that um, a lot of what we see, and I, I say I think this, it's not just because I just saw it. I think I hear people in the industry talk about this. There's a lot of uh, talent that I use that term loosely. <laughs> talent Steve. that's been elevated and promoted to our community that it's clearly either if it's not mental health, there's a mental disabilities. There's things like that. We can see that these aren't the same rappers we came up on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you think about some of our, our biggest rappers, and they were 18, 19, 20 years old, the stuff they were rapping about, and then we've got 25, 30 year olds a day that you know all you talk about is taking pills to, to numb yourself. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, what role do you think hip hop should play in the mental health of black, of the black community? I think it's a great question. And I don't, you know, I, I like to listen to what I like to listen to. I like to write about what I like to write about. And so my goal is not to police anybody's creativity. I Agreed. think there's a space for everybody to do what they do. My concern, though, is with what is marketed broadly. And I think about, um, you know, why, for instance, Black Star never won a Grammy. Or I think about how, uh, you know, certain groups, certain artists don't get um, their just due, like Talib Kweli. And if you're not talking about, you know, shooting up the community or shooting drugs into your arm or those things. And so for me, it's not necessarily about the artist. Um, it's about the monetization of the marketing machine of hip hop, as we already know, um, that has been deliberately aimed at our destruction. And so um, I, I think that hip hop has, in fact, done a good job at helping people tell their stories, helping people who feel like they're alone hear a story that matches theirs and suddenly they don't feel alone anymore. And you know, when you think about Eminem, for instance, um, there were a lot of poor white people who thought that they were, they were the only poor white Appalachians right. and suddenly this dude comes out and they're like, oh gosh, somebody sees me. Yeah. And so for me, I think that mental health and hip hop are inextricable and you know i don't know if you know this but w fresh is doing some really amazing work um he works with this they call him the hip-hop doctor he's a neurologist and they have i was at the congressional black caucus last year and they did a um a session um and i, I wish i could remember this neurologist's name he's a very talented doctor um and faculty i think at columbia um and you know they have all these songs about mental wellness, but also about physical wellness. Mm -hmm. They're like they have a, a rap song about um, understanding the signs of a stroke. Mm -hmm. And they oh. said that um, since they made that song, they gave some number of like 85 kids have been able to see their parent or grandparent or loved one Jeez. having a stroke, call 911, and save their lives. Wow. And so I do think that hip hop has done a good job at telling the stories and all those things. It's the marketing and the A&R people who give the budget to those individuals highlighting what's not okay. Yeah. Not okay sounds judgmental. Not as productive. Not as productive. Yeah, yeah, there's, not. there's no balance anymore. Absolutely, or, absolutely. Know, yeah. ab ab absolutely. And so yeah. for me, um, you know, when I think about, you know, it's not that Outkast was always talking about 
the greatest stuff or it wasn't always like black empowerment and public enemy but they juxtapose entertainment and knowledge and the goal was never to make people feel that their circumstance or their situation was being played in a, in a negative way. And right now what I see is the highlight, like you said, of the substance abuse and um, all those things. And I think when you describe the current rappers and compared to, we sound real old right now, these young folk, like these young people, um, it, it, it really is just a symbol of where the world is right now. Yeah. Young people are experiencing stuff that me and you didn't have to think about growing up in the 80s. Yeah. Like when I think about what my 14 year old son is exposed to at this Absolutely. age, I'm like, my mind would have exploded yeah. if I had yeah. access to all this. I, I agree. I agree with that. And I think that uh, I wonder if I, don't say, I wonder if part of that is, you know, we, for some reason we feel like once you get to a certain age, you can't rap anymore. You shouldn't be rapping anymore. But like, you know, even Andre, he was serious when he said about what mm -hmm. rap about. Like, there's tons of stuff you can rap tons about that we want to talk about. And we want to hear it. Right, we wanna, and we want to hear from you. <laughs> so it was like, um, you know, and that could be another message for that to help the younger ones as they grow. And say, okay, this is what's next, what we look out for. And for us to kind of still, you know, no one, no, I would say that no one told Maya Angelou stop writing poetry when Ever. she got 30 years old, Ever. right? Or, or James Baldwin, you, you, you're, you're too old to write now. Yeah. Hip hop is poetry, you know? So for some reason we, we've, we've, we've convinced people that at a certain age, you should stop, you right. know, and, and we lose those voices, so. Um, but I do appreciate somebody saying, I don't have anything to say right now. I, yeah, I can appreciate it. And that. I would rather some of the people who do have a platform, <laughs> I would rather they right. not be speaking right, right now. Right, right, right. You so, don't have to, you don't have to say speak, something. Right, right, right. right, right, right. Yeah, I, I can understand that as well. All right, now I'm gonna make an assumption here that at some point, because hip hop is so ubiquitous in our upbringing, in our age, right? we, we grew up the whole time with it. At some point, you wanted to be a rapper. Maybe not professionally. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, bars. You so. had a crew. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot for the bars, but I figured you probably aspired. You, you wrote a rhyme at some point in your life. All of us have. Yes. What was your rap name? Oh. I don't think I ever had a rap name. Okay. So, my, I, my, my, so today, even right now, as I sit here as Dr. Grant, when I go home, I'm man. Okay. My middle name is Emmanuel. Okay. I'm Donald Jr. And my mother never wanted me to be Little Donald or DJ or anything like that. Right. So she extracted man out of Emmanuel. Uh -huh. So I guess if I had a rap name, it'd be man. Man. That's, that's man with two ends. That's dope. That's dope. I like that. Okay. So that's, that, that's my rap All name. All right. And you're from Buffalo. But I'm from how Buffalo. How long were you? Because you've lived different places. How long you, you grew up in Buffalo? I grew up in Buffalo High School. I, I left school. all the way through high school. Okay. I left Buffalo at 18, went to Hampton, okay. and um, yeah, I've, I've now lived in Los Angeles longer than okay. um, I've lived in Buffalo, so I've been in LA for 20 years. Great. The reason I asked is I um, interviewed Tracy Lee oh. uh, from, uh, I always miss it, the theme, this is his big song, but he's still, just got new. go get Tracy Lee's album, by the way, uh, Different, that's the name of it, mm. up? Different, dope album, adult album. So he, he talks about adult stuff in a dope way. I brought that up because he was born in Buffalo. Yeah, he was raised yeah, in Philly. Yeah. So, I, so I hear Buffalo. Tell me who, who, who you love from Buffalo. Well, you know, Griselda's out there yeah. doing some good work. We got Benny the Butcher. And, um, and so 
For me, it's it's a little bit younger than I don't I didn't know them cats in Buffalo, right. but I love their representation. Um, Buffalo has been always seen as this little hick town, but I mean it's the second biggest city in the state. Um, the Buffalo Bills are the only actual football team that plays in New York State. That's right. The Giants and the Jets. Buffalo Bills, Bills Mafia. We're the only New York team authentically playing in the state of New York. And so I've I haven't lived in Buffalo in over 20 years, but I rep hard. Right. right. Um, you know, coming from a place like that. I mean, America is less than 14% black. Mm -hmm. Buffalo is 33% black. Wow. 33%. And so, you know, for me, the development that I had growing up there. My first mentor uh, was a woman who worked at my school, um, at my high school. I went to a school from fifth grade to 12th grade. It was an honor school. And Miss McVeigh, she grew up in Farmville, Virginia, and she and her best friend were the first students to start a, um, a walkout to, to protest segregation in 1951. Um, in fact, her high school um, was named after Dr. Moton, who was a Hamptonian who graduated in 1890 from Hampton. Moton Hall. Moton Hall. Exactly. Yeah, Moton Hall. Moton Hall. Those yeah. Hamptonians, we know about Moton. You know. <laughs> I was in Harkness. I saw what happened in Moton. You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so my first mentor was responsible for reigniting the modern civil rights movement because after they had 450 students walk out of that high school, the legal, the, the lawyers from the NAACP came there and that Farmville, Virginia case, that walkout was one of the cases used inside the Brown versus the Board of Education um, case. And so being from Buffalo, you know, it, it was a town where like my great grandpa, he moved up there from South Carolina because of the steel mills and he wanted to escape Jim Crow. He'd go back every year and get his cousin and so that's right, how my right. family got to Buffalo. Um, and so I'm a big staunch fan and supporter of that city because it gave me the grit juxtaposed to the ability to be able to speak and code switch and do all the things because I grew up in a mostly black city and then I go to a black college right. and then um, people say, oh, the world is not mostly black. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But what I want to do is I want to honor and um, value my blackness before I'm forced to question it. Our last question I want to ask you about uh, hip hop, and you kind of said Andre 3000 was your favorite. Yeah. So would you, um, the question was your spirit rapper, like do you see yourself in him or do you have a different rapper that kind of hmm. speaks, like if if you were a rapper, like Andre, maybe he's not your answer, but who do you see, like if I were a rapper, that's who I would Yeah. So <laughs> that's a great question and two things come to mind for me. So Andre 3000, I think he would be my spirit rapper as I as I am, right? But then I also think like if I had an al alternate alter ego, like probably DMX. Like nice, I would want to nice, be that yeah. dude. I like, can see that. Don't want to be D. Yo, Dr. Grant in the building, son. Like, <laughs> I love it. I think he would be yeah, my yeah, alternate, yeah. like somebody who's totally not who I see myself to be. But like sometimes I, I want to walk into a room like that. It's, yeah. It wouldn't be really authentic, yeah. but, or maybe it'd be more yeah, authentic than I thought. I, I will say, you know, I think that that's that. I think it can be, it can be a, a combination. It can be a, a gumbo pot. I yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we I all we so. don't have that. And that's the thing I love about hip hop, like blackness, is that 
We know how to dress it up when we need to. We know how to have fun when we need to. That's right. We know how to get dirty in the streets when we need to. I remember the first time I heard, growing up in Buffalo, I never heard Master P. Okay. Until I went to Hampton. Yeah, yeah. And the guy who was across the hall from me in Harkness Hall was from New Orleans. New Orleans. And I heard this, but I'm like, I've never heard this before. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, what is this? Right. First time I heard Go-Go yeah. was at Hampton yeah. because they didn't play it in Buffalo. And I'm like, wow, to be exposed to this openness of black music that I never knew was really exciting and so I I could pick you know UGK if I was if my if I was a group <laughs> like, right, right. I'd be UGK like I don't there's a lot there's so so many levels to it yeah. um, and I think for me I think my closing point here is that I think that hip-hop represents the diversity of blackness mm-hmm. um, when I think about Anderson Pack, even though he's not a rapper He's a hip hop type artist and he was rejected for a while because of kind of like what he looks like. He didn't ascribe to the whole what black is. And for me, I'm grateful that we're in a time that black kids and black adults now get to choose their blackness in a way that that, that, that's whatever it is. When I used to go back to the projects after I went to school, um, people, oh, Donald, you talk like actually you speak white I never said that but um, <laughs> if you, know, you want to meet <laughs> if you want right, to right, right, say it but right, right. for me our ability right now to be black in any way that blackness that. presents itself that's what I'm most excited about right now I love that man we're out of time so I won't get deep in it but yeah I love I hate when people talk about pulling your black card this and that but look black is more it, all of it is black yeah, yeah, yeah I love that yeah, I love no. that I don't eat apple pie I mean I don't eat pumpkin pie oh, I, about to say, I don't, eat, I don't eat sweet potato pie I don't eat sweet potato pie either bro so we cool I'm still black black <laughs> so let's uh, before we go I want people to know how they can um, get in touch with you you got some books I know yeah. uh, so talk about what's going on with you how can people work with you uh, yeah. hire you go to my website mindfultrainingsolutions.com you can find me on Instagram at dr underscore grant um, and my books are all three books are available on Amazon um, my first book is an international study on black men and racism in the United States Canada France and the UK um, and it is entitled black men intergenerational colonialism um, and behavioral health my second book is a family children's story um, published by this brother right here um, and it is entitled a moon for us all my third book is an intergenerational study on white supremacy also published by this brother right here entitled white on white crime old lies and contemporary times get your copies today awesome executive coaching executive coaching mindfultrainingsolutions.com set up a consultation Donald, this has been great, man. It's been great, man. Appreciate Thank you for having, having me. you, man. So glad you called while you're in town. So glad to uh, be here. Looking forward to just more great things, man. And, Let's uh, do it. Congratulations to you, man. This is a beautiful space. This is a beautiful work Thank you're doing. You, man. Appreciate that. All right. So again, I'm Ryan C. Green. Thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, go listen to all the other episodes. Make sure you subscribe to the channel wherever you're listening or watching this show. Subscribe. You've got the power to uh, elevate the kind of media you enjoy in our community by taking just one action, share, like, subscribe, something like that. If you want to uh, reach out, go to I am born to be dope on Instagram. We are on Instagram, just doing Instagram. I am born to be dope. And uh, let's do it, man. So go out there, be unapologetically great at being you because you were born to be dope.
This is the illest rhyme I ever wrote. Said I was born to be dope. I dream big like my visions were projected on the movie screen. Beat side stamming into watercolor blue screen. Muscle with the hustle, turn my dreams into reality. I'm my ancestors while there's dreams on the balcony. Scribbling notes into the margin of my composition. But what's next? Matter of my ambition. I failed to step back, but kept pushing. Reinventing myself, establish a better.